0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of AI at Work. I'm Rob May, uh, partner PJC. Um, I also write the Inside AI newsletter, inside.com slash AI, if you want to check that out. Uh, This season, we are having companies that are focused on AI machine learning that went through Y Combinator as our guests. And so today I have Scott Clark, the CEO of SigOpt, uh, which was uh, part of the winter 2015 batch of Y Combinator. So Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your background, pre-Y Combinator, and then sort of the the, the SIGopt founding story.
1: Definitely. Uh, so, I actually uh, got the idea for SIGopt while I was going through grad school. I was working on a PhD in applied math at Cornell and basically found myself running into the same problem over and over again. Um, I would work on something really cool with a bunch of experts from around the world. We'd apply a lot of domain expertise and context awareness to build a bioinformatics model or a computational fluid dynamics model or whatever it may be. Um, But unfortunately, all of these different things that we were building had a lot of tunable knobs and levers that affected their performance. As the grad student in the group, it was my responsibility to kind of fine tune them to get them to their peak performance before publication. Um, We jokingly called this in the department grad student descent. The methods for doing it varied from brute forcing it and just burning through hundreds of thousands of hours of government supercomputer time to trying to do high dimensional black box optimization in your head via trial and error. Um, All of it was super unsatisfying and it was this kind of nuisance task required after all the fun domain expertise oriented stuff was completed in a project. Um, Eventually, getting frustrated with that, uh, I found who became my PhD advisor in the operations research department, um, who focused on this area of uh, academia called optimal learning or uh, adaptive experimental design, sequential model-based optimization. There's there's lots of different names for it because it comes up so frequently, Um, and ended up developing um, some initial software and a big chunk of my PhD thesis around trying to solve this problem more generally. Um, After grad school, I worked at Yelp for about two and a half years on their ads team and was relatively surprised to find literally the exact same problem waiting for me. Um, Instead of a bioinformatics genome assembly problem, they had an advertising system, um, but it had lots of tunable knobs and levers associated with it. Um, The main difference being, instead of getting those configuration parameters just right, meaning a slightly better paper, um, at Yelp it meant a lot of money. And so there was a lot of incentivization to solve it well, and I ended up writing Mo, or the metric optimization engine, a popular open source library for Bayesian optimization to help solve this. Um, after doing that, though, I went around to like 25 of the, the big Bay Area tech companies, all the, the, the usual suspects, Google, Facebook, LinkedIn, eBay, etc. Um, and I heard that they had the exact same problem I had. They were building recommendation systems, um, uh, uh, fraud detection algorithms, advertising systems, things like that. A lot of domain expertise went into them. But lots of these config files, lots of magic numbers, lots of uh, x equals 1.264, and then a comment, do not touch, or whatever it may be. Um, Unfortunately, though, the way that we approached it and the way a lot of the academic open source approaches it um, is to try to solve it from a research perspective, try to push the field forward, try to publish something, something like that. And the main feedback I got from Mo was, I had an optimization problem, and now you've given me an optimizer problem. There's lots of tunable configuration parameters of the optimizer itself. It only hits a handful of my types of problems. It doesn't scale well. I need to be a PhD in order to use it. And so I founded SIGopt on the premise of, let's take that optimization problem and instead of just shifting it, let's just solve it once and for all. And over the last five years, that's what we've been focused on doing, taking the best of the best of the academic literature, taking an ensemble of all of these optimization approaches and putting them together besides a clean uh, enterprise platform that can scale with usage, can provide differentiated insights and solve the full volume, variety and complexity of these optimization and experimentation problems as they exist in enterprises today.
0: Really, really interesting. And so. Um, so what led to, you know, did you guys raise funding before you went through Y Combinator? Or was Y Combinator sort of the start of this? And, and what, what prompted you um, to, to, to apply and
1: to go? Yeah, so uh, we actually applied to Y Combinator a few months after writing that, uh, that open source package Mo. Um, as I said, it, got, uh, it was well received, uh, gave dozens of these talks to these high profile firms. It got like over a thousand stars on GitHub within a week or two um but again the main feedback we got was this is good but not good enough this doesn't solve the problem but it's, it's the right direction so uh convinced uh my best friend uh to quit his job in new york and move into my basement and uh we founded the company and applied to it to y combinator and all of that happened over the course of months um it was uh, uh just friends in a garage and uh, a freshly incorporated Delaware C Corporation. And then we did our YC interviews and we're off to the races.
0: Wow. And so back in 2015, I mean, that was kind of early for that was a little bit before I think the boom of companies really starting to say, you know, we're machine learning companies, we're AI companies. Did you brand yourself that way at that point? And, and were, were there other companies in YC? Like, like, was it clear that this was an emerging trend? Um, around AI or or did you guys just stand out like a
1: sore thumb? (laughs) That's a great question and uh, again uh, we had talked to a lot of these very leading tech firms uh, in order to get this idea and see this was a problem and uh, in uh, the hubris and naivete needed to require to start a company I kind of over-pattern-fitted to to those types of companies. (laughs) Turns out the rest of the world isn't like Facebook and Google and Netflix necessarily, Um, although they are beacons that a lot of these firms are trying to become like. And over the last five years, we've seen massive strides both in those firms but also in firms kind of catching up um, that's been buoyed by a lot of the technologies that are out there. But I would say um, we were almost too early. that's turned into to a, a great uh, advantage, being having a first-mover advantage, being able to get a lot of patents and peer-reviewed papers and uh, being able to work with some of the world's leading firms uh, over the last five years. But uh, I would say, um, even when I would go and we would be presenting papers at NeurIPS or ICML or things like that, uh, we were the heretics in the corner saying, tune your hyperparameters, like don't do grid search, whatever it may be. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's interesting, right? Because you're, I mean, if
0: you go back to sort of 2014, 2015, maybe even, maybe in a year or two later, you know, this idea was because hyperparameter tuning was hard, it was the reason AI was considered like more art than science even maybe, right? Because you just had to kind of, have done a lot of these and have a feeling for, exactly. you know, what you might, what you might do. Um, so, uh, so talk a little bit about for your customer base, talk a little bit like the buyer's journey, like how do people find out about this? Do they, do they realize they're, they have a problem or do you have to focus a lot on problem awareness? And when they have a problem, um, do they know what the solution looks like? Uh, is it a sort of consistent type of customer that
1: you, that you sell to in an organization or, or what? It's a great question. So, um, Anyone doing modeling has this problem, from the simplest random forest where you may need to select the number of trees to the most confluted um, semi-supervised learning algorithm with convolutional neural network in it or whatever it may be, where there's architecture parameters, hyperparameters, feature embedding parameters, etc. cetera. Um, every single machine learning model, every single simulation has tunable parameters, whether you're tuning them or not. So if you're not tuning them, then you might not be aware that there is a problem and that you're potentially leaving massive upside on the table. Um, That can be really tricky because sometimes that leads people to think, oh, AI is not ready for my problem because I pulled something off the shelf and it didn't work right off the bat. Therefore, it doesn't work at all. Not knowing that had they tuned the hyperparameters or the architecture even just a little bit, they could have it surpass whatever is the status quo today. So people have this problem whether they know it or not. When they do know this problem, they they have this problem, they tend to leverage kind of the standard approaches. Um, Things that have been advocated in the academic uh, literature for decades sometimes of, yeah, just get an intuition, just try to figure this out. Uh, Humans are good at many things, Uh, humans are very bad at doing 10, 20 dimensional optimization in their head. Right. Um, And not only are they bad at it, but trying to do it is a waste of those expert resources and sometimes a huge waste of computational resources as well too. If you have to spin up a dozen GPUs to train your model, you don't want to just be shooting in the dark in a 12 dimensional space. Um, Instead of doing it manually, some people try to do more brute force approaches that can work okay for small, simple models but it doesn't scale to the the volume, uh, variety, and complexity of things that we see people using today, uh, especially some of these more advanced uh, deep learning and reinforcement learning techniques. So um, a lot of times people just aren't aware that there's a solution, and so we can come in and educate them, hey, there's a better way, um, and it doesn't need to be as painful as the open source it doesn't need to be as painful as you going and getting a phd in bayesian optimization or whatever it may be it can be a couple lines of python it can bolt on top of your system we can meet you where you're at and really make sure that we solve this problem once and for all for you
0: that's cool and do you do you think of yourself do you think of sigopt as um uh, sort of being a part of the auto ml toolkit or do you think of that as a sort of separate industry from hyperparameter
1: tuning? another great question. So I think that term has evolved over time. Um, uh, AutoML these days tends to mean a very (laughs) end-to-end solution where you're giving it uh, clean data and then it kind of does all the tasks for you and then gives you basically a binary model at the end of the day. Um, And that can be really powerful if you have very kind of standardized data you can use a more commodity model. You're trying to do things like just line fitting or something like that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the problems that we see in the real world don't fit into that kind of very simple, commoditized uh, pipeline, and there's something unique about the data, there's something unique about features, or f- unique about the application. Again, domain expertise and context awareness can provide a big role when building these more differentiated models. And so while AutoML AutoML end-to-end can help with those simpler ones, we see certain AutoML components like neural architecture search, like hyperparameter optimization, fitting into a less automated stack that's more augmented, um, where the user and the expert can apply their domain expertise, but then they can still leverage state-of-the-art tools to automate just the most uh, time-consuming, expensive, or the least uh, applicable parts of that pipeline. And so, while we do automate that experimentation, we can also work hand in hand with the user or interleave their own optimizer, allow them to do manual search and grid search in addition to our searches and things like that. Um, but we do firmly believe that you're never going to take an end to end automation system and accidentally come out with like a good self driving car algorithm or a right. Netflix's recommendation engine or Two Sigma's algorithmic trading strategy or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, so, those are the types of models and that types of differentiated. Things that produce an outsized business value that we tend to focus on um, and build tooling for.
0: And so, when you talk about end-to-end, uh, you know, sort of uh, pipelines, you know, ingesting data, going all the way to models and all that, what are you seeing in the market in terms of how uh, how, how data science teams think about when they use more integrated solutions and when they use sort of best-of-breed pieces of the stack that integrate with each other? And then, how does that translate to you know when when you think about what you do? How much is your product roadmap about you know moving up or down some level of the stack um, to, to to control a little more of the workflow versus going wider on more types of models that you support, more types of use cases,
1: and, and those things. Yeah, so um, I think teams can leverage uh, both type of approaches. To be completely honest, um, having that automated um, system can work great for a baseline. Um, it's better than nothing, it can help enable uh, analysts that don't have a lot of experience and things like that. Um, And it can be a good first pass. It's often not enough to differentiate you from your competitors almost by definition because it's an off the shelf uh, approach or whatever it may be. Um, But when you layer that on with a good best in class toolkit, that's how you kind of move up the stack from more analytics types models into more differentiated modeling. And as you move up that stack, There's a power law uh, in the amount of value you're bringing to the business. Fitting a line might be worth some amount of money to you, but um, like Netflix has a a recommendation engine they value at a billion dollars a year. Two Sigma has $50 billion of assets under management. Um, A lot of these firms are really building what they think will really differentiate them in the market, and those are the types of models that you need to have a best-in-class tool set for.
0: Interesting. And do you see this starting to move towards more um, more traditional companies in older industries who are starting to adopt AI and realize the, the the data that they have? Do they think about it that way? Do they realize the strategic value in sort of the the, the predictive value or the classification value of of data that they have? Or do you primarily see this with um, asset-like companies like finance and tech? Like, like, where's the trend?
1: Yeah, uh, I think we, we definitely see this uh, uh, permeating through a, a wide variety of different industries. So people are hiring more machine learning engineers. They're hiring more data scientists. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing that across a wide variety of different firms. Um, John Deere bought an AI company for hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, Cat has a 100-person advanced modeling team. Like, these are industries that you would think Um, are maybe potentially as far as possible from systematic algorithmic trading. Um, But we're seeing that across the entire spectrum from maybe it started with algorithmic trading and went to credit cards and investment banks and then insurance and things like that. But even within completely different verticals, more and more people are investing in this. And I think they realize that the companies of the future, uh, 10 years from now, it's not just gonna be um, what your name is or what data you've collected, but it's really what you do with it. And that's where modeling comes in. So what technology are you not working on
0: to improve at SIGopt that you wish somebody else would work on and improve to make your lives better for the
1: stuff that you guys do? That's a, a great question. Um, so again, we're a, a piece of the puzzle. Um, and while we can provide a best-in-class uh, experience and platform for doing experimentation and optimization, there's many other components required to uh, build models and then to ultimately deploy those val- models and get uh, high business value. Um, So one area where we've uh, had some very successful partnerships in the past, and we're we're very excited with the way that the field is going, um, is in the more hardware components. So we're partnered with Intel and NVIDIA uh, and firms like that, and what we see is when you make the training faster, when you make it easier to use these more sophisticated models, that unlocks the ability to use them or unlocks the ability to tune them, and when you use a faster chip, you get a speed up. When you use a more intelligent tuning algorithm, you get a speed up, and those things can be multiplicative, which can mean the difference between something being tractable, um, which is maybe using a, a custom chipset to uh, tune thing with our tune things with our uh, ensemble of Bayesian and global optimization techniques, taking a day versus using a non-optimized chipset and grid search, which might take 20 years. And yeah. so it's the difference not only between performance, but maybe even what's possible. And so every advancement to make the rest of the tool set better um, is, again, additive. More data makes things better. Better features makes things better. Better insights makes things better. Better experimentation makes things better. It's not either or. It's an and. Yeah.
0: One of the uh, one of the books that I read that influenced my investment theses in AI was this book, um, uh, about the uh, prediction machines, and it's sort of about the economics of AI, and the whole thing sort of ties to the point that you just made, which is um, if you can lower the cost of prediction, what does that mean? It means you you have areas of your business that you didn't predict before that you will now because it's cheaper and faster and easier, um, which leads to better outcomes and um, and and all the stuff you mentioned. So I always try to think about as you do that, where where's the value going to accrue and to who, and right? What are the new skill sets and um, and so. And so, with that, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the investing theses that I have uh, about AI. And I'd be interested in your realizing that these aren't necessarily your areas of expertise, but I'd love your sort of off the cuff thoughts on them. Um, so, I, I always when when I talk about AI, I always tell people that Marvin Minsky supposedly in the mid nineteen fifties gave a grad student the problem of solving image classification for machine vision, right? And um, in, in 2011, we were basically like 68 or 70% accurate at image classification. And then between GPUs and CNNs and bigger data sets and ImageNet and everything else, uh, over the next few years, we got down to human level quality, just immense, immense uh, improvement. Um, I've been waiting for that to happen in NLP. And so what's your thought on that? Are we are we about to hit that inflection point in the curve for NLP performance? or? Is NLP just a different kind of problem and, and, and we don't know when that's going to go through the same um, the, the same
1: improvement phase as, as machine vision did? Um, I mean, I think fundamentally there are somewhat similar problems in terms of uh, if you can have an input data set and you can describe your objectives, then uh, you can develop algorithms to achieve those objectives uh, better, faster, and cheaper. Some of it comes down to the framework or algorithmic approach. Some of it might come down to tuning. Uh, we often retune NLP uh, methods that have been published uh, in peer-reviewed papers and show that value was being left on the table by not doing proper neural architecture search and hyperparameter optimization. Um, but I think even in the the last few months, some of the uh, uh, things that like OpenAI has come up with or Google has come out with has shown yeah. continued strides in this field. Um, we might not be at that uh, strictly better than a human phase now but it we're getting surprisingly close especially when you start to think about things like if you can do it in 140 characters is it indistinguishable from the median tweet or something like that right. it's, it's getting pretty close interesting um, one of the strong theses i have
0: in investing is uh, synthetic data do um, you have any thoughts on? The, the opinion is synthetic data. <laughs> yeah, just in, just in general. I mean, I, I think. Um, you know, good I, or is it bad? Yeah, I, I, I think it's good. I think that. Um, yeah, I should probably clarify. I think so. So it seems to have come up mostly in autonomous vehicles, right, to sort of yeah. simulate driving and everything else. But when you look at neural networks and the amount of data that they need, and the expense of creating that data, and there are certain domains where, uh, given a couple of data points, it's hard to create other possible legitimate data points. But there are certain Examples like the one I give a lot is if I have a picture of your face, I can do the lighting lots of different ways, right? And um, and I can put glasses on you, and I can change your hair a little bit, and it's still pretty valid to put into a machine learning model. So so with respect to use cases like that, um, you know, I am I am bullish on the fact that when you look out in five, six, seven years, every company that has any ML in their product is going to be integrated with some kind of synthetic data tool as part of their stack. Um, that's going to create synthetic data when,
1: when they need model improvement. Yeah, and I think that really helps too to make sure that you're um, not only being able to give enough data to these models to, to let them actually do their training and, and uh, converge to some level of accuracy, but it can also really help to um, uh, maybe simulate uh, the real world before you put something into production. Uh, we see this time and time again when it comes to like our algorithmic trading customers. Um, you have the history of the market, um, but if you only tune your algorithms to, to fit that, then you might overfit, versus if you have a good way to simulate the market um, in some sort of realistic way, then you have the ability to say whether or not a strategy actually performed well. Um, and that leads to better metrics, and once you have better metrics, these are targets that you're trying to hit as a business, and that's where we get really excited because if you have a metric you trust, then you can phrase a lot of what you're doing in terms of an optimization problem. There's the stochastic gradient descent optimization for like a neural network tuning towards that objective, but then there's the meta optimization of how you tune that actual stochastic gradient descent method or architecture, whatever it may be. Um, So more data, whether it's synthetic or real, or whatever it may be, leads to more accurate or trustworthy metrics, um, which we're very excited about because the next step is optimizing those metrics. And we do see this in algorithmic trading. We see it uh, for anomaly detection, fraud detection, um, kind of across the board, especially with the the rise of GANs and and lots of different ways to generate this data. Okay.
0: Um, And then, third thesis so, uh, non neural network AI, right? You know, there have been lots of types of AI, symbolic logic, genetic algorithms, you know, Bayesian probabilistic programming things. it seems like the boom in neural networks and all the money that rushed in and all the the, the people that rushed in um, also led to a little bit of re-interest in those other categories. And um, I've not made an investment in the other categories yet, uh, but I am looking at that. And I'm wondering if from your point of view, if you're starting to see a resurgence in non-neural network types of AI, either because people maybe need AI that works with smaller data, or is more explainable or describable or something like that, or or for some other reasons?
1: Yeah, um, uh, we definitely see that. So uh, what we find with a lot of our customers, especially as they become more and more sophisticated in this field, is they acknowledge the fact that you need the right tool for the job. And that tool might be a neural network, uh, might be a graded boosted decision tree, might be some reinforcement learning algorithm, might be something proprietary, might be an ensemble of these different approaches, whatever it may be. There's different business constraints around explainability. There might be uh, deployment constraints around memory footprint, power consumption, inference time, whatever it may be. Um, And then there's the ultimate metrics that drive your business forward, and you need to pick the tool that kind of plays off of all of these different things. Um, And the fact that we see that being the case, and we see even within a certain customer, them using everything from logistic regression and random forests and gradient boosted decision trees to deep learning and proprietary reinforcement learning algorithms is exactly why we've designed our platform to be incredibly modular. Um, by doing completely black box, derivative free, global optimization for these experimentation optimization tasks, all of these things look identical in our interface. All of these things use the exact same API and all of them can benefit from better experimentation and optimization and what's the new hot thing today might not be the new hot thing two years from now five years from now what i do know is experts tend to want to use the right tool for the job those tools are constantly evolving and over indexing on what's popular today um, is going to leave you behind uh years from now unless you can stay modular which is why we did that by construction interesting
0: um and so let's let's wrap up and talk a little bit about um Specifically, the kinds of people who who may be listening, thinking like, "This is interesting. I wonder if I should contact Sigopt." Like, who is um, you know you know who is a good sort of target customer for you? Target
1: use cases. You know, um, uh, you know, people that should reach out. So again, if you're building models today, if you have machine learning engineers building models, and that could mean uh, playing with scikit-learn in a Jupyter notebook, it could mean uh, spinning up uh, PyTorch on a big GPU cluster. Um, you have this problem. Um, Whether you're acknowledging it or not, whether you're solving it with brute force or cobbling together ad hoc tools or not, you have this problem. So um, if you're building models, especially if you think you will differentiate your business in some way in your ability to build these models, then we would love to talk because that experimentation can be done more repeatably, uh, more um, uh, collaboratively, uh, more systematically, and also better, faster, and cheaper.
0: Awesome. Well, Scott Clark, thanks for being on today. And if you're interest, you're listening and you're interested in contacting SIGOPT, um, you can go to the website at sigopt.com. Uh, and then if you have guests you'd like to see on the program or questions that you would like us to ask future guests, send those to work at pjc.bc. And thank you for listening. Thanks so much.